It is good to. Uh, there you go. See? That is not so good. Uh, give you a better That's right. I'll mention. It is good to change things up a little bit. I, 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 to be honest, I knew this was happening, right? And I was standing at the back and I was kind of like, hold up. Oh, oh, we started. Oh, 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 you know, because I, I, I use those songs at the beginning. Particularly if I know I'm preaching, I take the time to kind of like, I use those songs, I go to the back, get my thoughts together. So I, I don't have a sermon for today. I, oh, no. I was going to write. No, no. I, 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 <laughs> but we're going to be talking about. Uh, let me go forward. Forward is back. We're going to be talking about worshipping together. We, we, we spent this month talking about different aspects of the of the church, and a part of that is is how we worship together. You know, worship is a is a big theme in modern day Christianity, right? It's 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 one of those things that you know draws the big stadium crowds. Now you've heard of of Hillsong and and Bethel and you know these big. Uh, you know, when we were back in Manchester, one of the biggest churches there, and they, they ended up having, I think, four services on a Sunday, was the, the kind of Hillsong version. They called it Audacious Church. right? And it was this big stadium kind of thing, and they, they packed it with thousands of people, because I think there's something in Christianity people are looking for, you know, worship, and looking for kind of a, a version of, of what worship is. And But I also think, if I'm honest, and this is my opinion, you don't have to agree with me, but I think people's view of what worship is really all about out there in, in Christianity, in Christendom, is not particularly clear. And, and it, let me push that a little further. I think oftentimes not very biblical either. We're going to look at that a, a little bit today. But, but I was thinking back and I was thinking, well, you know, what, what, what for me was one of those times that I really remember as a, as a wow time of, 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 of worship. I remember it was back in 1999, I think it was, and I've been a Christian about a year and some of you will have been there. We, we went to this, there was this big campus conference in Alexandra Palace in London. And I remember going along there and there were 2,500 disciples. Actually, Forrest was there. Where's Forrest? Forrest was there. I didn't even know Forrest. No, none of us knew Forrest at the time, but Forrest was there. Uh, was Mandy there? Where's Forrest? Well, Mandy was there as well. So, so, so 1999, and, and it was packed with 2,500 uh, student disciples. And then on the Sunday, the whole of the UK churches got together. And it was, if you've ever been to Alexandra Palace, it's a huge, you know, the, the, the kind of main auditorium. It was pretty amazing. And, and, and what I remember about it was the first time as a young Christian thinking, Wow, maybe, maybe this is a little bit what heaven is going to be like, filled with people worshiping God. And for me, it was so, you know, and I think partly because I was, whatever, 19 years old and, and I was elated. And I remember leaving there just, you know, I was like, oh, I'm going to go change the world. And the next day I went, I worked in, I was working in the, in the summer holidays in this insurance company. And I went around and, and there was like 500 people in the offices and I was just sharing my faith with everyone. I, I posted these signs all over the place saying, you know, if you want to study the Bible, uh, here's my phone number and everything. No one contacted me. I was a bit crazy. But, but, but I remember thinking, and, but, but there's something about that that I want us to think about today. An experience of God that, that moves and stirs our hearts, secondly, but also prompts us, thirdly, to action. I've got some quotes from a guy called Tozer, who was, a, yeah, I think originally he was a farmer, but he became a, my dad is a big fan of Tozer. My grandfather wrote a book on Tozer um, years ago. But, 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 but he was a, a farmer, and a, and a guy went on to become a minister in America, died, I think, back in the 50s or 60s. Uh, in uh, yeah, 1962, I think it was. But he said, I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. That he was trying to get this view across, that, and, and, and we'll come to some of these passages, that there's something about what goes on in heaven 
that is all about worship. And if that's what, you know, heaven is about, then that's what we should be doing here on earth as well. He said we must never rest until everything inside of us worships God. Everything inside of us. And we'll talk about that today. Every part of our energy and our strength and our obedience has to worship God. And that's, that's a challenge. That's a challenge. The Webster's definition of, you know, what is worship? Well, the Webster's dictionary said worship is to honour God with extravagant love and extreme submission. Worship is to honour God with extravagant love and extreme submission. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at those three parts. Worshiping, like honouring God, extravagant love and extreme submission. Three points to the sermon. Because what we're trying to do today is get a bit of a biblical overview of what does the Bible say about worship. So firstly, worship is to honour God. And, 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 and this is what I was referring to before, that I think a lot of what goes on in Christendom today is a kind of version of the... We went, my, I took my dad to see this, or he took me to see this ACDC kind of rock tribute band thing recently, and there were all these like 50-year-olds up in the crowd, woo, you know, we're on a highway to hell! And my dad and I were looking at each other like, that's a really song, sad song to get excited about. But, but anyway, but, but it's a little bit like that, I think, a lot of what goes on in Christianity today. We're going to start with the kind of the, the point, phase one, if you like. Worship is to honour God. Let's have a look at uh, 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 Isaiah chapter 6. While you're turning there, let me, let, me, let me tell you a couple of things about worship in, in, in the Bible. The, the, the terms, and there are multiple terms for worship used in the New and Old Testament. But, but the way that they're translated into English, that term worship, just the term, is translated 172 times in the Old Testament and 78 times in the New Testament. You, know, you kind of think, well, why does that matter? Or, you know, whatever. You know. But, but, but the terms that get used actually mean to prostrate yourself, to, to bow down, to kneel with your face to the ground. Similar term for, for, for collapse. That there are times where people, it says that they worshipped because they, they, they saw God or an image of God and they collapsed, their legs gave way and they fell to the floor. But it is very much that, that kind of, I'm down on my hands and knees, almost, you know, cowering before God. That's almost what it means. The truth is that worship, though, is much broader than just those terms. The worship encapsulates our experience of God and our response to God. And really, that's right throughout the Bible. Much more than 172 times. Have a look at one of these passages that doesn't use the word worship, but is all about worship. Isaiah chapter 6. Let me just flick across. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and a train of his robe filled the temple. Above him was seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. 
Woe is me, I cry. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. What does Isaiah say? He has this experience of standing in God's presence. And he says, I saw Adonai high and exalted. He says, the train of his robe, you know, the, the, just, 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 just the, the, the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were these seraphim. What are seraphim? They're angelic beings. Angels. And it says that they have wings, and some of their wings cover their feet, and their wings cover their faces. They're almost afraid to look at God. But they call out, and the word there in Hebrew is, is, is sacred, sacred or holy. And they just keep saying it, holy, 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 sacred is the Lord God Almighty. All the earth, not a bit of the earth, but all the earth is filled with his glorious presence, his honor, his manifestation of power. But it says that their voices, not God's voice, God doesn't speak it. Their voices, their singing is so loud that the temple shakes. This wasn't a quiet, kind of pious, you know, monk in a monastery. This is, their voices were so loud that the temple shook. Smoke filled the room. How does Isaiah respond? He says, I am, the the word there is destroyed or perished. I am, I'm beyond dead. I'm, I'm, I'm destroyed. I am about to perish. Why? Because my lips, my language, my speech is unclean. What's he saying? My my life is unworthy. Revelation 4, you don't need to turn there, but Revelation 4 has a very similar picture of what is going on in heaven. The Apostle John there, the Elder John, you know, enters into God's throne room. The same kind of thing. He says, around God's throne, 24 elders... And what are the elders doing? They're bowing down and they take the crowns from their heads and they place the crowns at the feet of the one who is seated on the throne. And what does John add to our picture when he says that before God's throne there is a lamb, the lamb Jesus, who's been slain. And the elders, and they're, they're there, the same thing, holy, you are worthy, God. Thunder and lightning there in Revelation. I think it's really hard for us to grasp the emotion, the, the, the sensation of what, you know, what, what is that? What are they trying to convey? The awe on the one hand, the amazement, the wow, but also the terror. Maybe it's because I've been taking my kids climbing. This will relate to the, the mobs is more than... But, 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 but I've been taking my kids to this climbing centre recently. I, I did a bungee jump. I didn't remember being fe- fearful of heights, but I did this bungee jump. <laughs> We did this bungee jump in the church for charity. We raised no money. It cost us £40 to do it, which was crazy. But anyway, but it, and it left me with this fear. We were 220, we were in Stockport. We were 220 foot up over a car park. And, you, and, they, oh, and anyone who, there was a sister in the church who, they, they spent 15 minutes trying to coax her into jumping. I mean, it was terrible. You know, but I was terrible. My legs, my legs gave way. I was about to jump out this thing. And I looked out and my, my knees crumbled. I was like, what? What sane person in their mind is going to do this? But I thought, okay, not everyone's done a bungee jump, but you might have gone to, a, to, to the heights of somewhere like the Eiffel Tower or Empire State Building or, I don't know, somewhere, a cliff face. I don't know, it could be something like that where you've, where you've looked down. And you've looked around you. And, and, and I think, because there's a gut-level feeling, isn't there? You look around you and you think, wow, this is incredible. Look, 
Look at what I can see. Why you see the world differently. But then you look down and you think, Woe is me if I fall, if I let go. Woe is me, I'm perished. It's the awe. But it's also the fear. That range of emotions. Tozer said that this was his concern. He said that the church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshipping men. This she's not done deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge. And her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. He, he's talking about, he's not talking about our church or here, he's talking about Christianity today. And this is back in the 1960s. I, I think he would turn in his grave if he was to see a lot of the stuff that goes on in Christianity today. You know, I, I, I'm deeply concerned when I think about, you know, I've come from family going to many, many different churches and, and types of Christianity and, and some of it deeply concerns me because I, I find it in me too. Like we are the Facebook generation. I teach at university and, 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 and it's just crazy. I, I, sometimes I kind of walk around the lecture theatre and there are 200 people and, and some of them are on Facebook or whatever in the middle of the lecture. Like they can't put it down. It's, it's why? Because we're this kind of generation of thrill seekers, right? You know, it's kind of, give me the next high. You know, make it all about me and my selfie and woohoo, look, here's me having a great time with my great life and my great hair and, you know, but it's this face, we are the Facebook generation. And religion, what has religion done? Well, I think, this is my opinion, I don't have to agree, but my think, religion has created an, uh, this image of a fluffy, nice, yeah. white, old man, Father Christmas God. Yeah. Yeah. And then people kind of go, well, my Facebook life looks great and that doesn't sound so appealing. Who needs Father Christmas and Tooth, tooth Fairy? But, but that's not God. Yeah. That's not the reality of God. Bible says, Hebrews 12, you know, our God is a consuming fire. That's pretty sobering. Do you think about God? Do you really deeply think about God? I've got to be honest, you know, when, when, I, when I pray, a lot of the times my prayers are about God, I, I need help with this, and God, you know, give me an answer to prayer here. And it becomes all about the kind of the, the practicalities of life. Do I actually stop to think about God when I when I'm sinning? When I there are times, and you can relate, I'm sure. But but there are times where I know this isn't what I should do. I know that I'm going to make a bad decision and sin. And Forrest told me a while ago. He said he read the book that that, that said, you know, at those times it, we, we we choose to forget about God. It's the absence of God. We we're not thinking about God, right? And so that the sin just feels really appealing because why? Because we're not thinking. We don't have a deeply rooted image of God are you in awe and in fear of God Proverbs 9 verse 10 fear is a legitimate response to God we don't you know who likes talking about fear but but the Bible says fear not just a kind of a reverence oh yeah I revere you God you're like the headmaster no not that fear Proverbs 9 verse 10 says fear is the beginning of wisdom worship firstly is a response to God What kind of response? Well, second point, you know, with extravagant love. The, 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 the love 
the response to God is firstly an extravagant. What does that word extravagant mean? It, it means lacking restraint. And I was thinking, when, when do I feel kind of inhibited? When do I feel... I, I've been to America a few times for work and never have I felt more British than the first time I went to America. Right? I just feel so out of place. Because you go to a Starbucks or something. Brian used to be a chauffeur. Brian, oh, hey. Used to be a chauffeur in LA. You know, but he can tell you stories about this. Brian's not inhibited. But, but I go to a Starbucks and they go... And, they, and I go, uh, so yeah, can I have a, a double espresso, please? And they go, yeah, man! shame out the door. But there's something about that that we become socially inhibited. And when we lose a proper vision of God, our worship, our response becomes a ritual. Without heart, it's just pretense. Revelation 5, just after that passage, where John is in heaven and he's, and it says in Revelation 5 verse 4, when he saw that there was no one worthy to open the seal. It says, the, 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 the Greek there is, I wept and I wept and I wept. There's a deep, emotional, heartfelt response. Isaiah 29, 13, the passage that Jesus uses in Matthew 15. God says, they, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Their hearts are far from me. Have a look, uh, if you have a Bible, in Luke 7, 36. You know, I think one of the most beautiful images of, of, of worship in the New Testament is this. You can follow it through, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it from the, the message version. Okay? So the message version, but you, you, you'll follow the text. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him over him, Jesus, for a meal. Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and sat down at the dinner table. Just then a woman of the village... The town harlot, having learned that Jesus was a guest in the home of the Pharisee, came with a bottle of very expensive perfume and stood at his feet, weeping, raining tears on his feet. Letting down her hair, she dried his feet, kissed them and anointed them with perfume. I think it's one of the most beautiful images in the New Testament of worship. She was deeply moved. Why? She was moved at how they treated Jesus. Simon, this guy who invited him over, had deliberately disrespected him. Hadn't given him the formal greetings, a kiss, the, 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 the washing his head, the oil for his head, the washing his feet. Had deliberately chosen to disrespect Jesus. And this woman, it sounds like she was so prompted by how Jesus was being treated that it just it overflowed. She couldn't help but to, to cry, to weep. She was, so, she, she was so grateful for Jesus. She was so offended by how he was being treated. There was an economic cost to her. This was an expensive jar of perfume. But more importantly, there was a social cost. Right? There was a social cost. She wept, but then she let down her hair. And I think, you know, for most of us... We miss the significance of that. Women in Hebrew, in Jew, Jewish culture in the day, would not let down their hair except for their husband. Right? It, was, it was considered to be very central, almost sexual, to let down your hair outside of the kind of the bedroom with your husband. 
But this woman, she's so, I get the sense that she's so kind of embarrassed that she's crying on his feet. That, and she has nothing. She has no towel. She wasn't, what does that say? She probably wasn't prepared for this. She didn't go there with the intention of crying and weeping. But she has nothing but her hair. That's all she has. So she lets down her hair to dry his feet. This was extravagant love, but it was natural. It was organic. Acts 2 says when, when, when the apostles were filled with the Spirit, that they were, they, you know, they, they looked like drunk men. People in the crowd were like, wow, you know, these guys, it's nine in the morning. These guys must be drunk. That's how uninhibited they were. Ephesians 5 verse 18, Paul, when he's explaining it, and he says, he says, listen, don't get drunk on wine, but, and he doesn't use the same word drunk, but he says, be, be filled in the same way with the Spirit. He's saying in a sense, yeah, be drunk on the Spirit. Like, and, and, and there's a parallel between those two things. People who are drunk, they do crazy stuff, stuff they probably shouldn't be doing. But when we're drunk in the Spirit, we should be uninhibited. We are so reserved, I think, as a kind of British culture. I can say that because I am British and I don't offend anyone. And and, and this is not just about on Sundays. This is not, I mean, part of the sermon is about thinking about how do we worship on a Sunday and appreciate the skit. But a lot of this is about our lifestyles, our lifestyles, worshipful lifestyles. Do we cry out in prayer? When we go out to pray, do we mumble our prayers? When we're in our rooms, at home, do do we mumble and fumble our prayers? Or do we cry out? Do we sing? Do we sing at home? It doesn't matter what our voice is like. Do we sing? Chris was saying the other day about street preaching. You know, when you're filled with the Spirit as an act of worship, why not? When you share your faith out on the street, are you embarrassed? Are you shy? Do we speak and confront people without fear? These things, they're part of worship out of our love and our reverence for God. Paul says, because we are afraid, because we fear God, we try to persuade men. Right? It's the connection between our fear and our worship and how we live. Because we fear God, we try to persuade men. What about giving financially? Like, Do we give extravagantly? Or do we give the leftovers? just want you to think for a second. Like, What would extravagant love look like for you this week? What would extravagant love look like this week? You know, we, we, we joke, and most of these guys are probably off their heads drunk, right? But, but, but there's something about, you know, British people are very reserved until, where's Keith? <laughs> until you go to a football match. And if you've ever known it, you should go to a football match. Because British people, whether they're drunk or not, there's something about the, you know, and they're worshipping their football team. Yeah. Sorry, Villa. Okay, but they're worshipping their football Sorry. <laughs> but, they're, they're, but, they're, but it's an act of worship. But they're uninhibited. They're uninhibited. Third thing. Extravagant love, but also extreme submission. You know, without obedience, worship is just emotion. And this, for me, is one of the, the big problems I, I would say I have with a lot of what... It's called worship out there in Christianity. Without obedience, it's just emotion. Why do we obey? Why extreme obedience? Well, well, on the one hand, it's partly because out of love for God. But on the other hand, also out of fear. If you have a Bible, go to Genesis chapter 22, please. 
Genesis chapter 22, starting with verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the bird offering, he set out the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship. And then we will come back to you. We will worship. You know, what's interesting about this passage, amongst many other things, is this is the first time the word worship is used in the Bible. Now, Cain and Abel, they were giving sacrifices and offerings and other things, but this is the first time the word worship is used. And we know the end of the story. We know that, you know, he doesn't end up sacrificing his son, but, but, but you've got to, Abraham, when he's describing what's about to happen, what does he think in his mind? He thinks, I am going up this mountain to kill and burn my son. And how does he describe it? He says, I'm going to worship. In his mind, going up that mountain to kill and to burn his son is worship. Radical, radical obedience is worship. I've got to be honest, I, the more I, I, I've spent, I did a version of this sermon many years ago back in Manchester and, and I went back over the, looking through all of the, every single time the word worship is used in the New and Old Testament, preparing for that then and going back over them recently. And I've got to be honest, I, unless it hurts, it's not really worship. That's the message the Bible has for us. Unless it hurts, it's not really worship. If it's easy, it's not really worship. You know, and Abraham's sacrifice there is a foreshadow. What's really going on? It's a foreshadow of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice. Jesus' extreme submission. But right from the start of Genesis, there's this message that God's trying to get across to us that worship and sacrifice, worship and obedience, they go hand in hand. We like the love stuff, right? Love stuff sounds nice. It's Valentine's Day all the, you know all year round. We don't like radical obedience. We don't because we like to pick and choose. We like to pick and choose when and how we obey. I do, right? I, you know, I, I know that there are times I should exercise more self-restraint with what I eat. But I don't because I kind of go, you know, but I want that extra bar of chocolate or something, so I'm going to eat it. We know that there are times where, you know, someone was saying last weekend, you know, we go past someone, Matt was saying last Sunday, you know, we go past someone and, and we know that we feel the, the prompting to reach out to that person. Or there's a colleague at work and they're having a conversation and you think, I should say something now. 
And the Spirit's prompting you, but, but, but we don't, because we don't like extreme obedience. We like to think, I'm in control, I'll choose God if and when I obey. Yeah. How many times do we like to have the last word in an argument? Where we know, do you know what, you know, all those proverbs that talk about not having a kind of a, you know, a, 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 what's the word, a, angry words, etc. Angry words stir up wrath, etc., etc. We know we should hold our tongues. But we don't because we like to have the last word in an argument. Psalm 96 verse 9 says, says, tremble before him all the earth. Fear and tremble before him all the earth. In Acts 5, 11 to 14, Ananias is struck down and dies, and it says great fear gripped the church. That's something that we miss, I think, in modern day Christianity. One of my favorite uh, you know, worship churches that we listen to the CDs from quite often, and they have some great songs. I'd encourage you to listen to some of them, um, if you haven't heard them before. Uh, Bethel, produce, they're like Hillsong, they're that kind of version they produce. My sister gave me one of these CDs a few years ago. And one of my favourite songs on, on, on this first album is called, what is it, uh, Who Are or Who You Are. And there's a line in it that goes something like, you know, Holy Spirit, your eyes are filled with laughter. I'm sure that there's part of that that's true, that the Spirit is, is joyful and all those kind of things. But, but the message from a lot of the kind of Christian songs we often listen to is of a kind of a, you know, it's a loving, fluffy God, etc. You know, they light a fire down in my soul. Yeah. Da, 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 you know, that's, that's not a dig at that song particularly, but it's that kind of thing. But we don't like thinking about the message of fear. It's like the Black Eyed Peas said, you know, where is the love? We should have a sermon. Where is the fear? Because fearing God also leads to extreme submission. John 4, 24. What kind of worshippers is God seeking? People who worship Him in spirit, you know, with, with heart. But also in truth. Yep. Obedient in what then? You say, well, you know, obedient, what, what is it? Well, well Nehemiah 9, when they're worshipping, it says they come to God to worship and they confess. They were worshipping and confessing all day long. Like a part of our worship, probably before our worship, should be about confession. You know, what is on our heart? What, well, where is our sin? 1 Corinthians 11, 28, before we take communion, we should examine ourselves. James 1.26 says, you know, what kind of religion is God looking for? Well, he says one way you control your tongue and one way you're not polluted by the world. Romans 12, where we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Not just a, a little bit of money on a Sunday or a song or something, but offer our whole lives. It's not just part time. It's about denying or resisting or rejecting ourselves. So as we turn towards the communion today, I want us to, to think about those things. Part of our worship is about examining ourselves. Is there unforgiveness in our hearts? Is there worldliness? Have we been living the life of a disciple? And it's not to, it's not to lay a guilt trip on us. It's, it's, our worship is meant to be about repentance as well. Our worship is meant to be about change. It's a positive message. Our worship, our experience of God should lead to a better life as well. Tozer said, I think it's my left arm. In closing, he said, without doubt, the emphasis in Christian teaching today should be on worship. There is little danger that we shall become merely worshippers and neglect the practical implications of the gospel. No one can long worship God in spirit and in truth before the obligation to holy service becomes too strong to resist. Fellowship with God leads straight to obedience and good works. This is the divine order.
and it can never be reversed. So in closing, as we think about taking the communion, we've talked about three things. Firstly, seeking a deeper understanding of God. As we get older, as Christians, some of us, that's a challenge because complacency breeds contempt, right? We kind of we know God and we're not excited about him the way we used to be, and we turn our hearts to other things. Seeking a deeper relationship with God all the time. We, we, we can never grow tired. Our worship, you know, if you feel like, well, my worship is dry, my lifestyle of being a Christian is hard and I'm not motivated, start with God. Start with seeking a deeper understanding of God. We've also talked, secondly, about, you know, worship being about extravagant love, uninhibited. And thirdly, about extreme submission. But as we take communion today, let's, let's think about all of those things with Jesus. Now, Jesus' sacrifice was an act of the ultimate worship. It was extravagant love, but it was also extreme obedience. Let me encourage us, though, not just to take the communion today thinking about Jesus, but also to make a decision. You know, sometimes I think, I don't know about you, but I find that communion, like I sit there and I pray and the bread and wine comes around and, and I pray, yeah, thank you God for the cross and things. But, but I also think God wants us to use those times when we bow our heads, when we pray, to make decisions. That's part of our worship as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, thank you Father for the chance to remember a Jesus Father. Thank you God that you're not just this God who, you know, was there on Mount Sinai in fire. You're not just a God who at the end of eternity we'll see in heaven. Father, you're the God who we saw on earth. Father, we see you in Jesus. And that wasn't just you know, a man. That, that lady in um, Luke 7, what she saw of you in Jesus was enough to prompt her to weep, Father, and to embarrass herself, God. What they saw of you, Father, the apostles, God, was enough for them to give up their lifestyles, Father, and to follow God, these things are all part of worship, an experience of you, Father, that changes us, God, as well.